This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Here again today with a former guest on the show, Dr. Bill Coldwell, Chair of Neurosurgery at University of Utah. And I am delighted to say that we're sitting together face-to-face for the first time. Our previous conversation was done virtually. And here we are in person in L.A. at the AANS meeting. It's been a great weekend, and Dr. Coldwell was generous enough to give me some of his time this morning to discuss a very important issue in the evolution of modern neurosurgery. Sir, welcome back to the show. Thank you, JP. It's an honor to be here, as always. Thanks. And it's uh, great to do one of these podcasts with you. Thanks. So... The last time you were on, we talked about training in a county hospital, which is an issue near and dear to my heart. Um, As we discussed, I did medical school with Dr. Wang, who can't be with us, unfortunately, this morning, at the University of Miami, which is primarily based at Jackson Memorial, a massive county hospital. And we talked about your time at USC working in a county hospital. But I think when I talk to my resident friends, my cohort, when we think about your impact on the field of neurosurgery and the issues that we associate with you that you speak about and advocate about, as is the theme of this meeting, we think about vascular neurosurgery. You've, you've said publicly many times, anyone who does skull-based neurosurgery should be a vascular neurosurgeon, even if you're not treating vascular pathology because the vessels are there. And lately you've been speaking out more and more about the evolution of endovascular neurosurgery. And that's the topic that we want to discuss today, sir. So. With your perspective over the course of your career, maybe to set the stage for this conversation, chart the evolution of vascular neurosurgery as you've seen it in your experience in the field. Sure. So I I don't think anybody can deny the fact that endovascular uh, surgery is uh, usurped much of open vascular surgery. And this is continuing and it's evolving as the techniques and the technology of the devices improve. I think more recently, flow diversion has been a game changer. And, um, and obviously, the advent of the numerous clinical trials in 2015 that demonstrated the benefit of mechanical thrombectomy. Remember, we tried for years to improve the uh, outcomes and quality of life of stroke patients with medical therapy, but the real inflection point was the use of devices and surgeons doing endovascular thrombectomy, which really changed the whole course of the disease. So I see this as an important area for neurosurgeons to embrace and uh, really evolve with. I think if you look a lot of the technology that's been uh, developed for endovascular therapy, it's really been neurosurgeons driving it with a lot of the technology and the devices. But I see this as a huge opportunity. So we live in the rural west. We serve a very large um, square mile area, uh, a lot of the country in the Intermountain West with our academic medical center. And we're a referral center for stroke over a wide area. And I think the importance of neurosurgeons being able to do this is critical for the simple reason that it's a fairly simple thing for us to learn as neurosurgeons how to do simple thrombectomies. And if we can teach our neurosurgical residents to do that, they then can be the nidus of a stroke program in any kind of rural community. Whereas if you have a neurologist or a radiologist doing the endovascular work, 
they require neurosurgical backup, but the neurosurgeons are in the in the unique position to be able to provide all aspects of care because the medical therapy is quite cookbook and algorithmic. Mm. It, it, it's interesting as as we were walking in to have this conversation, um, I, I was. You know, I, I admitted, I will say, uh, I gave my disclosure that I'm more spine-oriented within neurosurgery. And it's funny talking about stroke as a pathology because I guess to draw a parallel, in the spine world, we, for the past 10 years, as long as I've been in medicine, there is such an ongoing conversation and theme about the aging population in our country and in developed countries around the world and how that is every year we see the incidence of back pain and spine pathologies going up, the prevalence of people living with that going up. Um, and that's such a driver of technology, but also techniques within spinal neurosurgery. But you know, another pathology that older Americans face is stroke and vascular disease. And so I, I don't think anyone would argue that as the average age of our population continues to increase, as people live longer and in those older years of life live with chronic disease, frequently vascular diseases, um, we should see an increase in the incidence of stroke in this country. Add to that ever-expanding indications for mechanical thrombectomy, um, larger core infarcts, longer since the last known well, etc. I think we're going to see a significant increase in demand for people who can do these thrombectomies. Um, as of now, a neurosurgical graduate from residency has to do two years of endovascular training with fellowship certification to, to do these procedures. But to my understanding, you would advocate that a graduating general neurosurgeon should have the capacity and privileges to do a thrombectomy? Yes. I think that's what we should strive for over the next few years. Um, it's, it's actually, when I talk to my endovascular colleagues, because I admitted uh, I don't do any endovascular work myself, but when I speak to my endovascular colleagues, and we have four neurosurgeons in our own department that do it, they say the, the simplest aspect of uh, endovascular work is mechanical thrombectomy. And a number of our residents rotate, uh, they do a core rotation in, in, in endovascular work, and then they also do an additional elective. And they're very competent, and this then fulfills the first year requirement for their endovascular fellowship if they so wish to do it. And so I think it's a, it's a simple thing for us to, to consider and it would hugely change the uh, quality of care of patients in many communities around the country that just don't have the access to a full-on stroke service in, in, their, own, uh, in their own area. And, and obviously time windows are, are increasing as you mentioned all the time and it may become infinite over time the way it's going. Um, so I see this as a huge opportunity. Um, the other th aspect I would say is that also we have to consider in concert is the ability to be able to train and maintain open vascular skills with the continued reduction in open vascular uh, number of cases that are being done. And so we've given this a lot of thought. Um, and for, for instance, I train my own fellows as skull base surgeons and open vascular surgeons. And uh, the reason for that is multifold, but it's, it's a, these are collision tumors in my mind. 
um, skull base surgery and open vascular surgery, the skill sets cross over beautifully. Mm. In addition, I uh, quite frequently injure vessels with skull base surgery, and I you have to be comfortable with being able to do microsurgical repair. Um, and many of the bypasses that we do now are in skull base surgery and tumor removal. And so the bypass skills cross over in both specialties as well. So I think the open vascular surgeon of the future will be somebody who has to be comfortable with some difficult aneurysms that can't be treated endovascularly, which will decline as the endovascular techniques improve, but also bypass surgery, which will be very important for revascularization and then um, also vascular replacement when you need to remove the vessel for an aneurysm or, um, or tumor removal. Mm. You know, it, speaking about these issues, which are kind of on the tip of the tip of the spear in terms of subspecialization within neurosurgery, talking about a vascular neurosurgeon, a skull-based neurosurgeon, perhaps a, you know, in the realm of a slight tangent, it, it strikes me that there's also an evolution in the general neurosurgeon. And, you know, we're, we're talking about skill sets that people are graduating with. I think as, as you look at the evolution of our field in the last 10 years, 20 years, graduating residents have a very different skill set than people finishing training 50 years ago, for example. Um, obviously, there's been a dramatic increase in the volume of spine surgery and the relative volume of cases that residents do during residency um, that spine occupies. But as you say, the ever-increasing volume of endovascular cases that residents get during their general training, things like functional uh, neurosurgery, DBS, that's done during residency. I think the characteristics of a graduating resident today are dramatically different than one 50 years ago. So. You're an ideal person to ask this question, I suppose. In, in your conception, what does a general neurosurgeon look like today, and how would you contrast that from when you were finishing training? Yeah, I mean, I, I finished my training 30 years ago, and uh, there are very few things that I do in my practice that are the same as the way I was trained. And if you think about the evolution, I mean, endovascular was not even on the radar screen at that point. Yeah. Uh, cardiology was just uh, beginning to really um, delve into uh, stents, etc. And that revolutionized, and it paved the way a lot of the way for us in endovascular surgery in, uh, in cerebrovascular disease. Spine uh, instrumentation was just in its infancy back then. So now it's routine. Our residents are fully well-trained in and doing all sorts of degenerative disease, tumor work, and then also scoliosis. So it's, it's changed enormously. I think the message that I give to all the young people is that the field is evolving quickly, continuously. And be open-minded. Hmm. And it's also important to understand that you, you may not evolve into the direction that, you, you know, that you're conceiving right now as where your career will, will play out. And so for you, JP, for instance, you're a young person and you're thinking about your future in spine surgery. You never know what future is gonna happen. Uh, I mean, I can give you countless examples. I mean, Yasser Gill started off doing stereotactic work <laughs> and angiograms. Uh, Sammy was a, was a peripheral nerve surgeon before he became a skull base surgeon. 
you know, I started off doing functional surgery and skull base, you know, together. And, and so I think it's just the field evolves. You find your passion. You find the, the direction the field's going in. And you think about the whole Gretzky thing of going where the puck's going to be. And, um, and I think that the people who have successful careers really evolved to that epoch of time and where the field is at. And I, I can think of a number of people, like Reg Haid, for instance. He was one of the, the uh, early pioneers in, in spinal instrumentation. Um, Kevin Foley, um, you know, developing the whole MIS field. I mean, these people are seeing where the field is going and being part of the change. And I think that's what you need to think of in, in your career. So how do you apply that at home in your program? Because you have residents graduating each year that you're sending out into the field to do exactly what you're saying, start their careers. And there is a certain amount of anticipation you have to have leading a department when you're, you know, you're, you're responsible sure. to that trainee to give them the skill set they need to succeed, take care of their patients with this moving target, not just of a nation of patients, but as you say, the moving target of what it means to be a neurosurgeon and what right. will be expected of those graduates. So over your ex- years of experience heading the department, what sort of anticipation do you incorporate into running the residency? Do you, how responsive are you? How long do you wait to see if a trend sticks, so to speak? Like, how, how flexible are you in the residency structure when you see these trends happening in the yeah, field? Yeah, and I, that's, a good, that's a good point that you bring up because I do think that we're not as nimble as we should be. Mm. But I've been very proud with the response of neurosurgery with respect to minimally invasive spine surgery. I think that uh, uh, neurosurgeons are at the forefront of that. Um, I think we've jumped on endovascular very quickly. And uh, we've got major leaders in the field uh, from neurosurgery. And so I do think we're better than a lot of specialties, but I still think we need to be nimble and realize when these types of advancements come forward, we need to be able to deploy resources and workforce uh, to going after it. And I, I, you know, the functional surgery, I think, is always in the background. There's always fascinating things going on right now with that. And so we, we, I think I rely on my specialists, my specialists in these different areas to sort of counsel myself uh, on where I think the field is going and, and how much emphasis we put on that with respect to uh, resident training. For instance, focused ultrasound. We have a focused ultrasound machine, and our residents are encouraged now to do focused ultrasound because mm. we see that as an increasing uh, tool in the use of uh, you know, movement disorders and that sort of thing. And so I, I do think that you need to be nimble and you need to have people on cutting edge in each of these areas to help guide you. Yeah, you know, this is, it, it's a bit of a hack question, but I think, as is frequently said, cliches are cliche for a reason. And so I, I find myself sometimes sitting with, with people like yourself who I just want to ask the, the hackneyed question. So thinking about the field today, as you said, you're 30 years out from training. If you were going into residency today, what, what sort of neurosurgeon do you think you'd wind up becoming? Yeah, I mean, I think you see it with with what our trainees are doing now. I think the attractive areas and where the field is moving quickly and where the opportunities are are rising quickly are endovascular therapy. Uh, So 
endovascular vascular disease, uh, not open. Uh, open will just be a component, I think, of skull-based training and, and surgery. And then spine. I think spine is continuing to evolve. And I think MIS spine and endoscopic spine is a really interesting area. And we're just at the, really at the beginning of endoscopic spine surgery, but that could be developed much more. And so those are great areas. I think functional disease as well, because I think we're always sort of on the cusp of developing meaningful therapies for people with a lot of common diseases, like depression yeah. and, and that type of thing. Um, obviously, there's uh, a lot of less common diseases that we deal with, like a, a tremor um, and, and, and that kind of thing, you know, uh, OCD, etc. But psychiatric surgery with uh, functional surgery will become increasingly important. We just started a program in that in our own institution to get going with trials in different diseases. So I think these are all evolving areas. But the surefire bets right now for residence training, in my mind, are endovascular and spine. Yeah. It, it's so interesting that that question, when posed to real leaders in a field, and, and in particular people who are known as innovators, when I've heard them answer that question, you know, if you were a resident today, what would you wind up doing? People hardly ever say the field of their own specialty. So, you know, you, you talk to someone who's a great innovator in spine or who develops endovascular devices, they hardly ever say, well, I just, I was so drawn to the spine and I love spine so much, I would still do that. They, they tend to say those things that as you say, are in their infancy and are at the, the tip of the spear because it, it seems like there's this real undercurrent among neurosurgeons, or maybe it's a, you know, there, there's a cadre within neurosurgery who are just drawn to new things, drawn to unchart, uncharted territory, and they want to be the ones to explore that. And so wherever that cusp of innovation is in a given generation defines whether that exploratory innovative person winds up as a great spine surgeon or a great vascular surgeon That's or a exactly. functional surgeon. They're, they're drawn exactly to the border. What I said earlier is that, you know, you've seen a lot of people who've been leaders in neurosurgery that have evolved in their career yeah. and they've taken a more divergent path. And I, I think that's just, they're just reading where the field is going and where their passions are and see if they can match those two. Yeah. So I do, you know, the, the thrust of this conversation was the thrombectomy question. And so I do want to show respect to that issue because as you say, the need for operators to perform a thrombectomy is increasing now, will continue to increase. And as you've said multiple times, it's a great opportunity for us to carve out and maintain our stake uh, as operators doing those procedures. So. I'm halfway through residency right now. I'm still learning how to do the procedures and some of the higher level regulations and not just how to do the surgery, but how to be a surgeon in a, in a hospital setting in a healthcare system. Those, those chapters are in the back of the book that I'm still reading, so to speak. So I wonder if, if you put yourself in the shoes of a PGY-7 who's done hundreds of endovascular cases, met all their minimums, uh, doesn't have a formal accredited fellowship and certification, but is by any metric competent to do a thrombectomy. They're going out into the community, they're getting a job, they don't have their fellowship, but they want to do thrombectomies and there's a need in their community. 
can that person do thrombectomies? Is that a negotiation with a hospital for privileges? Is it state licensing? Is it JCO? How, how does someone navigate that if they, as you advocate for, want to do thrombectomies, but they don't have the piece of paper? Sure. Yeah, no, I think it's a local hospital privileging issue. Yeah. I mean, a number of us have foreign trained people in our departments, right? So they're not board certified in this country. And so, but they're recognized experts in their respective areas. And so the privileging is, a, is really a local issue. And, um, and so that's, that's a possibility. I do think it's easier if you have a cast approved fellowship, if you wanna do endovascular therapy right now, and that gives you your ticket. Um, it's recognized by other specialties as well, so you won't have pushback from competing specialties, you know, uh, trying to oppose you from getting privileges. So I do think that's probably the safer way to go with that. But I, I, I just want to maintain the, the message to the, the young people that be open-minded, have a broad skill set when you finish your training. And you'll see how things evolve and see how your career goes and see what your interests are. And then you'll become more specialized as you, as you become more senior and more experienced. But be open-minded and understand that your, your interests may change a little bit. So have a nice broad training. Try to learn how to do everything in residency. Try to make sure you learn how to do radiosurgery. For instance, in our own program, this is, a, this is always a, a contention for our program director, is that the residents are always interested in doing big cases in the operating room, and they kind of downplay the need to do stereotactic radiosurgery. Whereas I say, you should learn how to do that. That's important. It's, <laughs> right. it's a nice part of practice. If you go into private practice later on, you should learn how to do that. You know, so you, should, you should make sure your training is broad and you never know when you're going to need those areas that you were trained in but maybe weren't so interested in when you were younger. Yeah, the evolution never ends. Yeah. Um, well, in that spirit, I'd, I'd like to put a pin in this and this, this marks a, a day and a point in time where we have this conversation and... I will put you on the hook to come back in a few years and we'll have this exact conversation again and see where we've wound up as a field. Um, see if any of this prognostication bears out or if we wind up in a, in a place no one could have anticipated. I'll look forward to that. Thank you, sir. Thanks, JP. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.